Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Rawson, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news organization at thenevadaindependent.com. You can make a tax-deductible contribution there, too. We appreciate all of the support from our readers and podcast listeners. Today, we're going to play my interview at our first Indy Talks event with Governor Brian Sandoval. It was provocative in newsmaking on many fronts. And afterwards, Managing Editor Elizabeth Thompson and I will give our takes on what the governor said. First, though, a few headlines from the Indy this week. The big news? The reaction to Congressman Reuben Keewen being accused of sexual harassment by a former campaign staffer. That story, broken by the website BuzzFeed, has been picked up by national outlets mid pressure on him from Democratic leaders to resign. We've published a lot of reaction to that story, and our new D.C. reporter, Humberto Sanchez, caught up with Keewen on Capitol Hill. The congressman told Sanchez he will not resign, but he would not answer a question about whether he will run again. I'll repeat what I said in my column, which you can also find on the site. Keewen can't win, I don't think he'll run again, and he may yet resign. The Democrats don't want him there, and if any more women come forward, he's definitely going to be pushed out. We also have a story on the site about former Congressman Crescent Hardy, who lost to Keewen in 2016 and has said he wouldn't run again, but he's now reconsidering. Yes, the vultures are circling Congressional District 4. Our Riley Snyder had an update this week on both Clark County and the city of Reno pursuing possible agreements with outside law firms to sue opioid manufacturers. They're doing so despite lobbying from Attorney General Adam Laxalt for them not to do so, lest they undermine the state's case. But the private lawyers, who clearly see dollar signs, argue they can get better settlements for the local governments. And Laxalt has yet to make a compelling case that this is less about him having to share the spotlight than any legal arguments. I should say more about him having to share the spotlight. Finally, there was a big U.S. Supreme Court hearing this week on sports betting, which is banned in most states. Congressman, Congresswoman Dina Titus wants hearings on that issue, too. The American Gaming Association is all for opening up the market, which is a huge sea change for the gamers in Nevada who have been territorial on this and every other issue for so long. The justices seemed open to ending the ban, which will make Chris Christie happy. And the New Jersey governor is rarely happy these days. Don't forget to check out all of our stories at NevadaIndependent.com. And have I mentioned we're a nonprofit where your donations are tax deductible? And now on Indie Matters, my conversation Tuesday evening at the Smith Center with Governor Brian Sandoval. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome John Ralston. Thank you. Hi, everybody. The good news is uh, I will not be singing or dancing tonight, which is what you usually see up there. And a lot of people are thinking, yeah, you can applaud. That's fine. Hey, I, I really am so thrilled that all of you could come tonight uh, to the first of our, uh, what I hope will be a long-running series here at the Smith Center called uh, Indie Talks. Uh, I hope uh, that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the Nevada Independent, which is this little nonprofit adventure in journalism uh, that we started on. January 17th of, of, of this year. We're going to have our year anniversary uh, pretty soon, and it's been by far the most exhilarating uh, experience of my journalism career. 
uh, and uh, of all the jobs that I've had before and got fired from, this is by far my, my, the best one. Uh, and the reason it's the best one is because of the people uh, th th that I work with. And uh, uh, Elizabeth Thompson, many of you know, who was is, who is my number two, and that really means she's here. And when I say she's my number two, many of you know me, you know that means she's really number one, and she runs the place, and she is uh, as invaluable as anyone uh, to this operation, and she was the first person I approached about, about this. And then they're the, they're the people that really make this operation what it is, and they're in the back. My, my reporters are, are back there. I hope, they'll, I hope they'll wave. Megan Messerly, Riley Snyder, Bruce Gray, Jackie, Jackie Valley's back there too, I think. Am I right? Michelle Rendell's is there too. Uh, Michelle just did a very important interview and, and, and rushed over here. They're always working. I can't believe uh, their energy and enthusiasm and how much they think Elizabeth and I are superfluous to the operation. So I, I am glad that they're, that they're here tonight uh, with us. Uh, uh, we are thrilled with what we've been doing so far. Uh, we're now approaching uh, 100,000 readers uh, a month and we're growing uh, every month. But uh, thank you. Yeah, please. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is the shameless pitch part. We need sustaining members. Uh, we, we need uh, everybody here. Uh, we, have, we have members that give $5 a month all the way up to very large corporate donors. And we're about to announce a new one uh, pretty soon, by the way, that we're thrilled to get. Uh, but we need your help. Uh, so uh, please help if you can. And uh, when you leave here tonight, go accost people on the street, knock on your neighbor's doors, do whatever's necessary. I realize that's uh, what a nonprofit's all about. Uh, in this Indie Talk series, uh, which we are going to start doing quarterly, uh, if you're a member, you get preference uh, on tickets, as many of you uh, already know. I want to announce the next one. Uh, uh, we, we are thrilled uh, to have the governor here tonight. Uh, he has a very busy schedule, uh, even though he's you know, kind of a lame duck and doesn't do much anymore. But he, but he came, but he came uh, uh, anyhow to be here tonight. Our second one, you can mark the state on your calendar. We've already locked in here. Uh, in, in Myron's beautiful room. By the way, uh, please give a round of applause for Myron, who has been so generous uh, here. Uh, and, and we love what he's done. Our next one is going to be on uh, April 24th. Uh, as many of you know, uh, I have a somewhat of an interest in politics. And uh, filing is going to close in March. And right after filing is closed, we're going to do, do a major poll uh, on the races and major issues by the national pollster Mark Melman. Uh, and he will be here on April 24th to release those results uh, on that night right here uh, in this room. And so uh, we, we hope uh, you, can, you can come. Uh, I want to thank our event sponsor for tonight. We are thrilled, and they're right here in front here, the Nevada Association of Realtors. Can we give them a round of applause, please, for sponsoring the first uh, Indie Talks? And uh, I also want to thank our media partner, the Greenspun School of Journalism. I don't know who that's named for. Uh, and, and, uh, they're they recording and producing uh, this, and we will have it uh, online uh, by, by the end of the week, and you can listen to it on the podcast uh, as well. We are really committed to partnering uh, with, with UNLV. Uh, we're going we're to have a partnership, we hope, uh, with UNR as well, and maybe uh, with, with the school district in, in, in some form. And we actually uh, made a point of inviting uh, up-and-coming students who are sitting, up, sitting uh, right here uh, up front. Let me introduce them. Uh, Chase, these are the UNLV journalism students first. Chase Christensen, Bruce Gill, and Sebastian Ross. Stand up, say hello. Uh, 
And from the Clark County School District, they're sitting here right there, right, right here uh, in the best seat in the house. We have Bailey Moore and Jillian Gallibert. Stand up, go ahead. I know some of you were hoping that you were going to be able to throw questions up here, but the governor's on a, a tight schedule. And, you know, I do have some experience answering, asking questions, so you're going to have to uh, count on me uh, for, for that. Uh, so let me introduce our, our, our guest of honor. Uh, I was thinking about this today. Uh, I've known the governor uh, for almost a quarter of a century uh, now, uh, around there. Uh, I am sorry, uh, and he can't help this. He has not aged as well as I have. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you some things you may not know about uh, Governor Brian Sandoval. I met, I met him when he won an assembly seat. Anybody know whose seat? Some of you in here do. Jim Gibbons' seat. If only Gibbons knew then, what he knows now. At, at 35, Brian Sandoval became the youngest ever chairman uh, of the, of the gaming, Nevada Gaming Commission. He later became uh, the Attorney General, and then he was appointed to the federal bench after being nominated by a guy named Harry Reid, who just may have been looking ahead to an election, as well as recognizing the governor's amazing legal talents. If only Rory and Harry knew, well, never, okay. <laughs> Way back in the day, the governor may not even remember this, uh, before either of us had any gray in our hair, the governor and I used to play basketball together. Uh, he was, as you might imagine, he was. Steady, reliable, a team player, couldn't jump that high. In fact, I may have blocked his shot once or twice uh, back, in, back in the day, but my memory's hazy. I also think that he couldn't go to his right. <laughs> I'll be here all week, right, Myron? <laughs> Since then, the governor has blocked, or may I say ignored, some of my shots of a different kind. But there's always been a mutual respect between us. I think I drive him crazy sometimes. But the governor is, is, a, is a true student of history. Uh, and he would never say this, but I will as I introduce him, that he will be remembered as one of Nevada's greatest governors. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Sandoval. Governor, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I hope we'll have a conversation about a wide range of things tonight. Now, I, first, I want to start uh, by talking about what a lot of people in this country are, are talking about, which is the national atmosphere in politics, and especially with there's an uh, election a week from today in Alabama, what it means to be a Republican, what it means uh, to be a conservative. You have Donald Trump, Roy Moore. You have the Republican establishment. They're unrecognizable from each other. I know labels can be fast, and I know, I don't know who these people are. Some people have called you a rhino uh, in the past, not a real conservative. I'm wondering if you've thought about this at all, and what, is, what does it mean to be a Republican, and, and do you consider yourself a conservative? A couple things. Um, yes, I, cons I consider myself a conservative, and I'm a proud Republican. Um, you know, I'm not happy with some of the things that are are happening nationally. You know, I've gone, as you alluded to in the introduction, not really gone with the party on a, on a lot of things. I have been called a rhino. Um, 
I don't have to go to many Lincoln Day dinners anymore, so that's <laughs> it. <laughs> but, 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 uh, this is better than a Lincoln Day dinner. Yes, it is. I'm glad to hear yeah. okay. uh, But in any event, you know, I, I made a, a solemn promise to myself a long time ago that, um, particularly in this position, I mean, it is a privilege and honor to serve as the governor of the great state of Nevada. I'm proud of this state. The state has given me everything that I have. Um, this is, you know, I truly believe this, my story is a story that I tell the school children all the time, that this is still a place that you can be whatever you want to be. You just got to work for it. But responding to your question, you know, I've just, as I said, I, I have been unconventional. I know that. But I've made my decisions based on what I felt was in the best interest of the state. And whether that be healthcare, whether that be education, whether that be tax policy, I could go on and on. I've, I have diverted. But at the same time, I think the state's better for it. Uh, we're in the best fiscal position that we've been in for many, many years. Our schools are better. Uh, we've diversified our economy. We made a great announcement tonight that uh, we've paid off an $800 million bond from the Unemployment Trust Fund, and we now have over a billion dollars in that trust fund. So, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, history will be, you know, my judge, and we'll see what happens after that. But, um, you know, I still consider myself a, a Republican and a proud Republican, and will always be a Republican. You know, you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't address the, the, the other word that I, that I mentioned, though, which is conservative. A lot, a lot of people don't think that Brian Sandoval is a conservative. And again, I, I don't like labels myself, and I think it doesn't tell a lot about the person to say they're a conservative or a moderate or a liberal. How, how would you describe yourself? Are you a conservative? Well, I guess it depends on how you define a conservative. I, I feel like I'm a fiscal conservative. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, the largest tax increase in history. Yes, but it also is invested in every child in the state of Nevada, and I will never but um, you talk to my staff, you talk to my budget director, I mean, I watch every penny. And yes, I did have the largest tax increase in the history of our state, but we've invested it and we've invested it wisely and we've invested in the people of our state and I make sure that it's accountable and every penny is spent well and so far so good. But, um, you know, that's one of the hard things, or I should say, you know, I'm, I'm one of those that, that has learned that lesson. It's very different from being a candidate and governing. And, uh, you know, we came in eight years ago, seven years ago, in the worst fiscal situation in the history of our state. Um, we were $2 billion budget deficit. And I did say at the time that I wasn't going to raise taxes, but I said that because you're not going to tax businesses when there's 14% unemployment and we owe the federal government $800 million, all those things. But ultimately, as I sat in the governor's chair, I learned very quickly that we needed to invest in our, in our children and in our schools for the benefit of the state and for the benefit of them. So, you know, there's a reason why I dedicated my state of the state to the generations to come. Are you a conservative or a moderate or, or are you even a liberal Republican? <laughs> you tell me. Um, you know, I, I guess it just depends. I mean, I, I've heard it all. You know, I, I've heard being accused of a rhino, and you know what? If that means I'm a rhino based on you know the decisions I made, and people have better health care, and kids have a better education, and the state's in the best physical position um, that it's ever been, then guilty as charged. You know, Governor, sometimes people forget this about both politicians and journalists, but but you're a human being too. And did it get to you? Did it get to you? 
the criticism, uh, that kind of criticism? Does it bother you? It does, but it doesn't. I mean, I, you know, it, it, it is never fun to be criticized, and, and it's not fun to be booed. Uh, you know, but as I said, I'd rather get an honest boo than a hollow cheer. You know, I'm not going to tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to tell them what I think is in the best interest of the, of the state of Nevada. So, um, you know, again, I, you know, I guess it is, you know, I told somebody I'm a lion in winter, but I'm still a lion. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've got a year to go, and I'm going to work extremely hard. I'm not going to let off the, you know, off the, the gas here. I've told my cabinet, I've told my staff, we have a lot to get done. And I want to make sure that, you know, this is a legislative year that we implement and implement effectively um, everything that we got past this session. And so I'm going to continue to work hard. We'll get to what you're going to do in your uh, final year a, a little bit later. Um, let me just wrap up this part of the discussion by, I mean, do you wake up in the morning and, and, and look at what's happening in Washington and look at what Donald Trump is doing to the Republican Party? And, and do you shake your head? I do. Um, you know, in all honesty, <laughs> you're making news tonight, John. <laughs> That's your job. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but I guess to finish that, the other question, then I'll, I'll get to that is, okay. um, you know, the, the criticism. But then again, you know, you have your quiet moments. And this is what I told the legislators who, who supported me during that tax increase that during that session is that, you know, we're not going to be in elected office for the rest of our lives, that it is a gift, public service is a gift, and you have to take um, advantage of that, of that gift. And there's going to be that day when you look back and you're gonna say, did I make the decision just so I could stay in office and I could be called sir or madam or, or what, whatever, whatever title it is, or are you gonna look back and say, I made a difference and I did things for people? So back to um, your question, you know, I do shake my head. I mean, this, it's a, I, you know, you said, I'm a student of history. Things are very cyclical, and we're in a very different cycle that, you know, is different. I'm, you know, I'm a disciple of Paul Laxalt. I, I had the privilege of doing an internship for him uh, when I was in college in 1984. And he, I really tried to model myself after that, after him. You know, I also had the opportunity when I was in the legislature to work with Bill Raggio and Joe Dini. And these are people that really made a, a big imprint on me on how you conduct yourselves and how you work together to, to solve problems, but be principled at the, at the same time. And then finally, when I was Attorney General, Kenny Gwynn was the governor, and I had a gift of, of being able to um, work with him. And you know, the phone would ring and he'd say, Brian, come across the street, let's have, let's have a chat. And I would walk across the street and we really wouldn't talk about anything, but uh, it really meant a lot to me that he would um, take, take that time. And, Right now, politically, we're in this place that, um, and as I said, it's, it's tough to watch. Um, it's, um, people are angry, they're frustrated, and you know, I've been one who always tries to work across the aisle. I, I love to, I call it personal diplomacy. When the legislators are elected, I meet with every freshman legislator, learn what their priorities are, see if we can work together. I'm, I'm sure the veto word's gonna come up later on in this conversation, and yes, I mean, I, I've got my lines as well, but I always try to work together with others. I don't see that happening right now, and um, I'm hoping it'll change, and you know, I try to set an example for, for other people that I, that I work with, but um, Washington's pretty toxic right now. Have you ever had a conversation with the president, a meaningful conversation? I've had a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I've had a meaningful conversation. Um, <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> no, 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 no. Guys, get that out on the site. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Um, so I've been at the White House. Now you're making me laugh. Was, uh, <laughs> no, we... Um, I had... You know, I had an opportunity to, to speak at the White House um, with regard to um, educational policy and an executive order that he had signed. Um, I will say this, that it was very meaningful to me that he came to Las Vegas after the shooting on October 1st. Uh, he didn't have to do that. And he did call immediately after it happened and I had a conversation with him and he offered his condolences and said that he was going to come out. So I, I, that went a long way. Um, the White House is accessible to me at any time in terms of um, having conversations. I'm in a position now where I'm the chairman of the National Governors Association, so that gives me access as well with regard to the cabinet. Um, I've established good relationships with all the cabinet members and, again, have the ability to have those, those phone calls. So, yes, I mean, I, I can't say that I've had a lengthy conversation with them, but we have spoke um, several times. You mentioned the National Government Association, and I appreciate the, uh, the good segue you presented to me here, because I want to talk to you. I, uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, uh, the governor, mm -hmm. who you work with uh, at, at the NGA, I saw something he said recently, and, uh, and he said the real job of a governor, essentially, is very simple. It's to create jobs. That, that is really uh, uh, what it is, and everything else uh, is secondary. I know that's been a focus of yours. When you came into office, we were in, in, in terrible shape. Uh, here, and I'm wondering if you look back, you know, when you look at the metrics, you can talk about a lot of jobs that were created. You can talk about some of the economic development uh, successes. There's also some evidence that wages have lagged behind. And I'm wondering if you're satisfied with what the economy is doing now. And if you think, obviously, we've come back from the recession. Unemployment was close to 15%. Now it's about a third of that. Uh, uh, are you satisfied with the Nevada economy? No, right I'm now? never satisfied. I mean, I, I mean, that's I wake up and go to bed and. You know, I had this conversation with somebody today, and we made an out, I made that announcement here with regard to, to unemployment, and we had lost 175,000 jobs. We, um, you know, unemployment, is, as you said, was 14%. Um, we had the highest rate of foreclosures, highest rate of bankruptcies, as I said, a $2 billion structural deficit, and I still remember you know, seeing all these people out of work. And I was very determined to diversify the economy and, as I said, just simply get people back to work so they could provide for their families, so that they could make their house payment and, and, and live a good life. But I don't think that job is ever done. Uh, we, um, we've had some incredible economic development victories. And I know I've been the subject of criticism um, from you and, and others. Never. <laughs> You know, and, that, and that's fine. Um, the criticism I think you're referring to, and this is, it's, it's an interesting subject. We just had Steve Hill on the, on the podcast, and we talked about this a little bit too, which essentially there's a lot of people in this city who think, God, yeah, it's great that we got Tesla. It's great that we're getting these other Apple, uh, et, et cetera. But you gave away the store to get them, Governor. Essentially, you know, you said, we got to play this tax incentive game. So whatever you want, Elon Musk will give you. You can have everything Well, that's exactly how it went. You know, <laughs> 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 I should have brought, I, I had a, somebody handed me a headline from the Reno Gazette Journal, October 10th, 2010, Reno, Detroit of the West. 
And they had hired an economist and a group to study the state and or, or study their economy and study economic development and, and what we needed to do. And what will this state look like in 10 years? And as I said, we have done all those things. I'm gonna get to you know the, the abatements and, and the incentives. I mean, it's a, you know, you gotta play in the real world. And the real world is this, is that states are competing for that. And we could I could have played it safe. And Why do we get into the game? Why should we have competed for that? Well, I could talk about $80 billion of in, uh, economic impact over the next 20 years. I could talk about 8,000 direct jobs and another 30,000 indirect jobs. I could talk about the fact that it landing Tesla, and I've had the privilege of um, leading trade missions all over the world. And when I travel, wherever I go, whether it's China, South Korea, South America, Europe, Canada, they said, how'd you do it? Australia, um, how did Nevada, how did little Nevada be able to land that Tesla? And Tesla's actually exceeded all our expectations and what they promised in terms of, of job production. It has completely changed um, northern Nevada in terms of what's happening there. Uh, it has brought many other companies that are there. So, you know, now, it, and it's coming, it's becoming more and more apparent here in southern Nevada, but in northern Nevada, the biggest challenge for employers is finding employees. The biggest challenge is that you have a vacancy rate of less than 1% up there. Housing prices have, have skyrocketed. I will take those problems any day compared to 15% unemployment and leading the country in foreclosures and people being, 80% of the people being upside down in, in their mortgages. But it really was a catalyst, a massive catalyst. And I hear it repeated over and over again when Elon Musk said on the steps of the Capitol, it's the get it done state. You heard um, Roger Goodell say it in another subject I'm sure we'll talk about is the Raider Stadium. But Nevada is the get it done state. And we, we are a place where people that are interested in doing business have immediate access from the governor all the way down and it makes a big difference. And if you came to our economic development board meetings and you saw our agenda and you saw the number of companies that we're approving and the diversity of those companies and the jobs that they're bringing and the high paying, paying jobs that they're bringing. And you know, I guess I gotta ask about your, your study, but the average weekly wage is the highest it's ever been in the history of Nevada right now. It's not high enough, but it's the highest that it's ever been. So you brought up the stadium. Uh, you know, you, I appreciate you producing this entire mm -hmm. Indy Talks for, for me, so it saves me time. Um, I mean, that's the same as Tesla. It's essentially just a huge giveaway of, of public money. Now, I'm just Your wanna, words. Yeah. I'm not, well, it, 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 I mean, it is a giveaway. I mean, it's $750 million. So I, I'm wondering, did you have to get sold, sold on that? I know you've talked about oh, being, yes. I, I know you've talked about being with Mark Davis and, 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 and you know, he, he was going to keep his promise. But that funding scheme, of taking 750 million, I don't mean scheme pejoratively, I just meant. Yeah, I, mean, I don't you, agree with your word scheme. Okay, but, um, but did, you, did you need to get sold that this was the right oh, use of that absolutely. money? Absolutely, I mean, there is no doubt about, I mean, frankly, when, it, when I first heard about even the whisper of the NFL coming to Nevada and us having the ability um, to have a stadium like that, I, I didn't think that there was any chance or that or something like that was possible. Why? because it just seemed like a pipe dream at the time. And, and I guess backing up a little bit, um, because I think it's germane or it's relevant to my decision on the Raiders is two years before that, UNLV had approached us 
to, to build a stadium, right. three to $400 million stadium. Actually, there was a $1.1 billion version of that stadium, and that funding stream likely would have come from the very exact, exact same place. But um, I don't call it a scheme. I mean, this was the room tax. I believe that that room tax is programmed and intended to invest in the infrastructure of Las Vegas. Some of that money is going to the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, $400 million of that. We have to have a first-class Convention and Visitors Authority, so that was, was the easy part of all that with regard to the stadium. It, obviously is going to bring us an NFL team, but it also will allow us to host events that we could never host before. I mean, I, you know, I don't, it's not for sure, but we could have a Super Bowl. We could have the World Cup here. We could have a professional soccer team. UNLV will have a first-class stadium to play in that they didn't have before. I think it's gonna bring a number of events that we couldn't do, and it just takes Las Vegas to that next level. You say the room tax is a natural use of that, and Steve Hill has sold that too. The room tax has changed, though, over the years. You know that. I mean, 40% of the room tax now essentially goes towards education. So you yeah, just, but you know the background as to why I, I, that I do, but, but, it, but, it, but that, that is the fact, though, Governor, if you look at where, where it goes. So you essentially said, I'd rather give... Uh, you know, you can do the math. I'd rather I'd rather give three hundred million dollars uh, to the Raiders than to public education. I didn't say that. I, I disagree. <laughs> really? Where's John. that quote? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I. I mean, to me, they're inextricably intertwined. Um, you have to improve the economy and invest in the state and invest in our infrastructure, which will create more jobs, which will create more tax revenue, which will be invested in education. Yes, you're right. We could have done that. And we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't have the stadium, but it's going to put thousands of people to work, the, the, the labor unions, and it'll start create some more vertical construction that we haven't had in Las Vegas in some time. And uh, I think at the end of the day, it is going to be very beneficial to education. I mean, I, as I said, I mean, that money to me um, is, is being spent on its intended purpose. So let's, let's talk about the other pipe dream that a lot of people think is out there, which is Amazon. Mm -hmm. What'd you offer them? <laughs> well, I read the editorial in the RJ today, um, but, it, but anyway. What, what, is, what is this RJ you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> I guess as much as I can say is this, is that our offer will not require a special session. So the, in order to get Amazon here, it will not take us out of any statutory um, regime that we have as we speak. So I think you can read through, through the tea leaves. There's no extraordinary offer here. I mean, this is- Then how do we have any shot? We're, <laughs> I think we're we have a great shot. we're a can-do state? Absolutely. Oh, really? I mean, that, and that's the thing. If, if, if you looked at that application for Amazon, probably, two-thirds of it didn't exist five years ago. And we were able to point to some things that we didn't have before that we now have because of the economic development that we have accomplished, because we are a capital for UAV, because we're a capital for um, autonomous vehicles, all those things. And uh, so I think it's not just about the money. I mean, certainly the money is relevant to all this. There are close to 300 applications, I believe, to, to get this done. But um, where we have taken Southern Nevada, I absolutely believe that we're going to be one of the top candidates for this because um, it's not, we already have a million square feet here in Las Vegas of a distribution center that we recently um, 
opened, or Amazon recently opened, but given the constellation of, of assets that we have, I believe we have a very good chance of getting it done. Uh, really, I mean, not just being your normal optimistic self. You really believe, I mean, oh, there's no substantively, we, we, we have a shot. Yes, we do. So tell us a little bit more about the package. I know, I know that, that was not. <laughs> yeah, but this is the package right here. You're looking at it. I mean, we, we have assets that other big cities have. You know, the, the things that Amazon would look, at, would look at, we didn't have that before. We have that now. That was one of the purposes of this last legislative session and me putting together that, or you know, the, the administration, that workforce development regime. All the pieces are in place, and we have assets that other states don't have. And when you put that together, that brings us into the conversation. Uh, one of the things that comes up, I know, is education. When you talk, when you're trying to get economic development, you've mentioned uh, the education system and some of the things uh, that you've done. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about education. I want to start with a, just a simple question: Are you proud of the state's education system? I'm more proud than I was before. Um, we have a long ways to go, there is no doubt about that. Um, again, I, that was one of the things that made a big impression on me when I was, was a candidate for governor. I made a commitment to visit 100 schools, and I was able to accomplish that. But when you get in a classroom, you talk to a principal, you talk to a teacher, you see those little guys, and we have half-day kindergarten, three and a half hours with kid, 20 to 30 students in a class. Do you really believe that you could get a child to grade level and get them prepared for first grade when you have that. We had barely any pre-K. Um, larger class sizes, you go to the English language learners. I visited a class here in um, Southern Nevada and it was a kindergarten class and there were approximately 20 kids. There were 11 different languages in that one classroom by itself. So I'm a visual learner. I mean, I, I really have to see things and that made a a huge impact on me. That was part of the frustration of my first, frankly, first legislative session and mostly second legislation is we didn't, legislature is we didn't have um, the money. <laughs> and that's why slowly but surely, that's why we created the Victory Schools, which, which are for the kids in poverty, the 24 zip codes. That's why we uh, created the Victory Schools for English language learners. We started out with 50 million. That's now $150 million, $50 million investment in the Victory Schools. Um, over the course of these past seven years, we've added over a billion dollars in uh, spending on K through 12 education. Our graduation rates have improved more than any other state in the country, but we're still one of the worst. And that's why I say, I can't say that I'm proud of where we are. I'm proud of our teachers. They work extremely hard with the, um, the assets uh, that they have. And it was my job to give them more assets and, and more resources. Um, that's why I signed that bond rollover so that we could have in Clark County uh, $5 billion of investment to, to build more, more schools and, and enhance the older schools and give them the infrastructure that they, that they need. You know, but it's not just about Southern Nevada. You, you visit a little town called Austin, Nevada, and I go there. The total enrollment of their high school is four kids. <laughs> I'm not kidding, four kids. And then you go over to Green Valley and you see you know, 3,000 plus kids, but the point being that a child or a student, a young man or a young woman in Austin, Nevada should have the same educational experience that somebody in an urban setting has as well. That's why I was out in Beatty three months ago or a couple months ago this summer and Beatty will now, is now just as connected as any city in the country. 
So part of this has been building the infrastructure so that all the students could have an equal educational experience. And uh, hopefully, you know, it's one of those things, sometimes you have to plant the, tree, the trees that you'll never get to sit in their shade. And uh, I think history will show that uh, the investments we made now made a big difference. You know, it's interesting because you talk about that, and I see pictures all over social media all the time. You actually go into these schools, and I see a meeting uh, with the students, and you talk about the experience of going into this classroom, and these teachers are just faced with these incredible challenges with all the different language, languages. And as much as you got there at a time when, when the, you, this may not be the right analogy, but I'll use it anyhow because I'm talking now, yeah. uh, the, the, ship was, the ship was sinking and, mm -hmm. and, and, you, and, you were trying to save, and you were trying to save it. And yet still, even as much as those numbers that you talk about with the victory schools, what you've done on ELL, I mean, the, truly the $1.5 billion tax package, people don't understand what was in that, I don't think really, Governor, and, and how visionary that was. And, and you know, I, I believe that and I, and I said it. And yet... There's still a caste system, essentially, where there are kids in schools that have not gotten the enhancements that others have. And so kids are getting disparate educations, especially here in Clark County. Kids who will, you know, you, you, did, the, you did the read by three, and, and that's great. But still, as much as our graduation rates has gone up, we are setting up still so many kids to fail. That's got to be so frustrating for you. I guess I'd like to hear a little more specificity as to what you're saying. But one of the things that, that we included in this last budget is the weighted student funding. And as I said, we've increased that funding, but it costs more to educate certain, you know, certain types of, of students. And that's why we made a massive contribution to that, to, to fix that disparity that, that you've talked about. Is it perfect? No. Um, you know, you talk about the sinking ship, and any of you that have read The Perfect Storm, there's that chapter on the zero moment. And I didn't want that to be that zero moment where the, the ship sank. So I think that, um, that we've, we've righted the ship. I think the ship is making progress, but certainly there's a lot of distance to go. I will assure you that I'm gonna be watching very closely what the next gubernatorial candidates are gonna be oh, saying. Oh, I can't wait for that discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, as you said, I'm proud of what we've done, but um, by no means is the job finished. We'll get to politics a little mm -hmm. bit later. I'll save the best for last. Um, but one thing that, that, that I know has been a very important uh, a policy for you is school choice, and it's very controversial, uh, as as you know. Uh, you seem to really believe in it, though. Um, uh, why do you believe in school choice? A lot of people think that school choice is, is is essentially an acceptance that the public education system isn't working, that it's going to be the gradual mm -hmm. erosion of the public school system. You you know all the arguments. Yeah. Um, why do you believe in it so deeply, Governor? Because I've visited the schools, and um, you know every kid's different. And every child deserves, and every parent, frankly, should have the ability to decide where their, their, <laughs> where their kids should go to school. That's uh, a minority of people. Like, not a lot of people didn't class. <laughs> no, and we, we have, believe me, and I... <clears throat> no heckling. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. I, I get it. But I really don't believe that it dilutes the public school system. Uh, we, we definitely had a debate this session about school choice. And, you know, we have opportunity scholarships. And people forget, you know, the opportunity scholarship is for a child that is, or a family that is 300% or, or less of, of um, the poverty line. There are thousands of students that are benefiting from that opportunity scholarship. They're doing extremely well. They're going to the school that they, they want to go to, and it is working. So I think people forget that we already have school choice 
in our state. We have charter schools as well that are thriving, and uh, it is not a, a bad word. And so, um, you know, I think that um, that it, you know, as time moves on, you'll see that the benefits of that. But as I said, I was just at a, a charter school a couple weeks ago, and the students are doing extremely well. I've visited schools and talked to students that are the beneficiaries of the Opportunity Scholarship, and they're getting to go to a school that they never would have gotten to go to before. Education savings accounts, though, would have been something dramatically different. They would have, they would have been a, a huge change uh, here in Nevada. And I know you believe in education savings accounts. At some point last session, you decided that you weren't willing to hold up the session, oh, yeah. that you weren't willing to have a special session uh, to get even just some amount of money into statute, Governor. Uh, why did you make that decision? If you really believe in school choice, you could have done it. I don't know if you know this, but you're the most powerful guy in the state. <laughs> you know, I know, I, I know that I could have called a special session, and I know, but you know, I'm not going to hold up. There, there's too many other people that would be affected by that. And what does that mean? Well, for example, you know, the, the school districts need to set their budgets. They need to know what is going to happen. And it, it just, to me, it would be, make us no different than Washington, D.C. And I knew in a, that the Democrats would probably dig in and you'd get into this, this stalemate and then it would, I think it would cause people to lose trust and faith in the way people, in the way that government works in the, in the state of Nevada. You know, and, and by the way, it wasn't that linear as you say. I mean, part of the, the ultimate um, resolution was putting an additional $20 million into the Opportunity Scholarship. So I felt like, wait a minute, you know, here's a way, here's a lane to add, you know, hundreds of more young men and women to be able to, to attend the school of their choice and at the same time not hold up um, the state and close in the budgets and allow um, the new bills and legislation that would be passed to, to move forward and you know, continue or hopefully um, maintain the confidence of the, you know, of the people of the state of Nevada that, the, that government in Nevada still works. So you're really going to go with the opportunity scholarships as school choice spin and, 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 and you're going to leave it at that? Is that what we got? I'm trying to understand whatever you're <laughs> suggesting, but... Um, <laughs> suggesting? So let's say this. I mean, school choice, ESAs are still in the law. They're just not funded. And, Minor point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I guess I will, I will go this far, but I'm not going to go into specifics. But there was a deal. There was a deal for education savings accounts. And somebody else blew it up. And uh, somebody else. <laughs> but is, there was this a, is deal. a nice room. You can name names <laughs> here. <governor. laughs> but, you know, there's the old saying that pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And um, and I did tell somebody that they're going to wish for that five minutes back. That five minutes back, you've got to know when to say yes. And because of that moment, we don't have education savings accounts. Is that person running for a constitutional office uh, yeah, this year, Governor? Not saying a word. Not saying a word. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about something that, that uh, you don't talk about much, and, and, and that's social issues. Uh, I think, I don't know how many people know, you're, you're Catholic. Yes. Um, but you're pro-choice. Yes. How'd you get there? I, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, I believe that decision's up to a woman. It's her body. And it's her decision. I mean, I mean, 
Did you always believe that? Yes. You've always believed that. Yes. You, didn't, you didn't go through some great transformation ever since you were a young man and you started thinking about these issues, you've been pro-choice. I've always been pro-choice. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, what about other social issues? I'm wondering, I, I mean, I, I know you're a thoughtful guy. I mean, gay marriage, I think it seems to me that's been an issue where you maybe have got, had an evolution like some others have, maybe not. Tell me where you are on gay marriage. I support gay marriage. Yeah. But you haven't always, have you? No, and it, it has been an evolution. And um, no, I mean, it, it's just, my best friends are gay. And they deserve to be happy. They deserve to be able to have the partner of their choice. And uh, so, I, you know, I, it's where I am now. You know, one thing I think is interesting about you is you were, you were against legalizing pot. Yes. Um, now you're trying to deal with all the issues, uh, revenue and whether it should be in gaming, you just have gaming policy. It seems to me that it's kind of strange that you'd be against that for this reason. Let me, let me play devil's advocate with you here. You could make an argument that gambling is a lot more addictive than pot is. So why not? I wouldn't know. I've never smoked yeah. it, John. Me neither. Me neither. Me neither. It's a true story. I've said it many times. I've never smoked pot either. Um, but gambling's very addictive. I think, the, I think the gambling addiction problem is probably a, a lot more sub rosa than people think. I think the numbers are probably bigger. It's a much bigger problem. So why not be for legalizing pot? Is that your old like law enforcement thing coming? The AG? What is it? No, it's... They're both both fruit, but one's apple and one's an orange, John. I don't, <laughs> you know. I yes, they're both addictions, but I, I don't agree with you in terms of making that um, comparison. But you know, I've had the benefit of serving as a judge, and I will tell you, when I did my sentencing, marijuana was almost always involved with that as a gateway. And you, so you you believe it's a gateway drug? I do. And that's do. the main reason you're opposed to legalization. Yes. But, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the voters of the state um, approved it overwhelmingly. And once that was approved, I, um, you know, essentially sat down with my staff, sat down with the director of the Department of Taxation, and I wanted to make sure that it was regulated and that it was strictly regulated, that it was respected, and that we have a regulatory regime that, that is something that um, others would, would copy, just like we do with with gaming regulation. I spent a lot of time with the governor of Colorado, Governor Hickenlooper, to try to learn less, or get some lessons learned from, from what happened there so that we wouldn't make the, state, the same mistakes that uh, Colorado has made. I mean, I, I know I can be um, like, I guess I'll put it this way, that so far it has run very smoothly. You know, I don't support, support the pot lounges. Uh, I don't think that that's... Um, Why not? I just don't think that's something we need in the state. And... You know, the other thing, and this is something we talked about in the Gaming Policy Committee, is we have to be careful, we be in the state, of taking things too far. You know, the federal government has so far, so far, you know, not intervened with recreational marijuana or medical marijuana, but if you start opening pot lounges or, or you know, business operations like that, it may invite more federal scrutiny. You, you, have you talked to the Attorney General of the United States about this? I mean, he's very opposed to pot. There's some talk that he may actually try to shut it down in the states at some point. Have you ever talked to him about it? Yes. And? And what? <laughs> Should we be concerned? <laughs> you know, I, 
there, there was a gentleman's agreement that, um, you know, what was said in that room would stay in that room. But um, I did have a conversation with him about it. When? It would have been in February, February of this year. And so you received assurances from him that he would not interfere. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Objection leading. You know, just, uh, <laughs> I told you he still wanted to be a judge. Yeah. Uh, background checks. You're, you're a pro-gun rights guy. You're a gun owner? I'm not. You're not a gun owner. Um, you were pretty strong on it, though. You vetoed a bill at one time uh, on background checks. Uh, I don't think you supported uh, question one. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Um, was that a mistake? No. Especially with all the mass shootings. Now, I know some of these have nothing to do with guns that were purchased illegally, and it appears that uh, what happened uh, uh, here horrifically on October 1st didn't, mm -hmm. but a lot of people have rethought their position on that with all the mass shootings that have occurred in this yeah. country. No, and I'll, I'll say this much, and I don't know if we're going to get into to October 1st, but that had a profound impact on me. Um, you know, I was home alone and got the phone call, uh, immediately came next. Who called you, Governor? Who called you to inform you Someone about on it? my staff. Oh. And I spoke with the sheriff soon thereafter, uh, watched CNN just like everybody, everybody else, but was getting um, you know, updates and landed here in uh, Las Vegas at six in the morning, uh, immediately went to the hospital, visited with um, patients and families and talked to some of um, some of the uh, the victims went to the site and I hope no one ever has to see um, what I saw um, went to Metro and talked to the um, men and women of, of Metro and the, the, the first responders so um, you know, met with, um, even went to the coroner's office the next a couple days later to, you know, and please keep them in your thoughts and prayers. I mean, they call themselves the last responders, and, uh, you know, this was really hard on them. Um, but in any event, that, you know, I will, that has taken a piece of me away that I'll never get back. And uh, so, yes, that, that is very relevant to my thought process and my calculus with, with regard to, to background checks. I will say this, and I don't know if um, you've covered it, but regardless of the, um, the legal opinion that was given, the State Department of Public Safety now will take voluntary background checks and do them for free. So that is a, a different policy change that, that has been implemented. Somebody may not be mandated, but if somebody is doing a private, um, gun sale in exchange, they can go to the state of Nevada and get a background check for free. I did not, I, I did yeah. not know that. No, I did not know that. Has it, I mean, you, I, I, I believe in just in the way you told the story, everybody in this room believes that it had a profound impact on you. Has it made you think maybe I'm wrong on... on, on well, it's not, it's not that black and white, John. It just isn't. And, you know, this, this individual, you know, and I'll leave it at that. I mean, it, this is someone that um, acquired all his weapons legally. Um, obviously, he, he modified them. Um, it wouldn't, I mean, you hear this all the time, I'm sure, it would not have changed the outcome there. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult question. Um, I have, you know, I, we asked for that opinion from 
the Attorney General's office because I wanted clarity on that, and frankly, it didn't change. I mean, it didn't change anything. So, um, but in any event, I'm trying to. I've tried to do the best I can, and with the confines and the boundaries that I have, and that being providing those. You know, the state will provide free background checks on a private gun sale. Um, I want to just slowly segue uh, in about 10 or 15 minutes we have left or so, or if I can keep you here all night, I will, um, and talk about a little bit about the state of Nevada and the political situation here. You know, from the days when you and I first met uh, in, in the assembly, it's become much more partisan up there in, in, in the Breakfast legislature. Breakfast at the omelet house. Yes, hey. exactly, exactly. Um, I know like most governors, you're thrilled that this is a very strong executive branch state, but it seems to me that there's a very disturbing trend. You just have, up, up in Carson City, affected by term limits, uh, good people more and more leaving, really good legislators not thinking that it's worth uh, being up there. You have these political operatives running around the buildings, press releases coming out. A few might, may even have attacked you uh, last session. Uh, I'm just wondering how long this is sustainable, the system that we have now. How long is it sustainable? Okay. Part-time legislature, we pay them nothing, we meet every other year. Is the system working, Governor? I don't know if that, that's the essence of the problem. I think the essence of the problem is term limits. Um, I support... <laughs> you know, I was one of those that, that took the bait and thought term limits was a good thing. You know, I'm somebody who had had the privilege of working with a, a Joe Dini and a John Marvel and a John Carpenter and you know you could, a Bill Raggio. You could go down the line, and the um, you know the experience that they had, and and now, and I know there's some legislators out there, but I mean, when I was a freshman, the, even the thought of chairing a committee was absurd. <laughs> Absurd, and that and that doesn't meant to be a pejorative of any freshman legislator who's serving as a chairman of a committee, but you have that institutional knowledge um, that is extremely valuable. You have um, legislators who've sat at the table and negotiated that have had the benefit of the experience of prior sessions, and now it's completely different. And as you say, there are good people that by the time they're getting that experience, they have to go, and. Uh, you know what, it's a huge advantage for an executive, for someone like me. It's a massive advantage because I've had the legislative experience, I've had the, I had the, um, the executive experience at the AG's office and as a, as a governor, um, you know, it, we, I have the benefit of having prepared the budget, I know the budget, and you have legislators who, who are dealing with a budget for the first time. And it's not saying I'm pulling one over Anybody, I'm not. I mean, I've always been very transparent, but I know what's in there. And you just can't learn that in 120 days. You just can't. It's impossible. I mean, it's volumes. It's thousands of, of pages. So um, that's what I think needs to be corrected. Is, um, is And I don't know if anyone's willing to do it, is to overturn the term limits. I was supportive of limited annual sessions, so you would in the off year, have a 90-day or a 60-day or even whatever, a 30-day budget session to make sure that everything is um, moving along. But um, I, I'm not supportive of full-time legislators. I don't think that's a good idea. But um, I think with a little bit of um, tinkering with, with the system I have, I think we can get it back to where it should be. You mentioned, and uh, you, you didn't want to talk about the moment when you think that ESAs could have been done and you think that someone... That 
uh, and I think I know who you're talking about, but, but, but I won't say anything. Uh, there was a lot of partisanship last session. And, and, and for a guy who I think rightly is known as a pragmatist and a guy who does reach across the aisle, you have 41 vetoes. Uh, uh, th that, as Struther Martin famously said in Cool Hand Luke, is a failure to communicate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Why> don't... <laughs> I don't have the single season record, but I do have the career record. For, yeah. uh, That's right. But no, um, you know, and, and you wrote about this in the beginning of this last session. You know, we had 2015, and there were a lot of bills that were passed that that I signed, and I made it very clear at the beginning of the session that I was not going to walk back any of those bills. I just wasn't going to do it. I think they were good policy. I wouldn't have signed them in the first place. So why in the world would I sign a bill? or support legislation that would undermine or, or um, dilute any legislation that I signed. And I made that very, very clear. I think, and, and this isn't the blame game, but um, I think I could have had a lot less um, vetoes if, um, you know, those, obviously if those bills weren't brought to my desk. But in the defense of the Democrats, you know, they have constituencies too, and they have to show that they can, you know, pass a bill and hear a bill and get it to my desk and that horrible mean governor, probably a little bit different language than that, um, vetoed those, those bills. But um, you know, a lot of those vetoes were difficult. I mean, you read them. I mean, there, there were um, bills that I really struggled with. And I took a lot of pride in the fact that I felt like my vetoes were all policy-based. They weren't partisan whatsoever. Those, those vetoes were things that I believed in. The atmosphere, though, up there clearly is becoming, in my, in my view, much more toxic. And now you have, and I know you've spoken out a little bit about this, now you have these recalls that, that, that are going on that are just going to make the poison the well even more. Whether they're successful or not, this is, this, I mean, are you worried about, about what's going to happen in the future? No, I, and from day one, I oppose those recalls. I think that is horrible policy. Horrible. Mm -hmm. And it's opened a door that won't get shut again, and it just kind of escalates um, you know, the, the, bad, the bad side of politics. As I said, I'm, I'm a student of Raggio, Laxalt, and uh, Gwynn, and that would have never happened in those times. Not to say that I'm naive, but uh, you know, I was very disappointed, and I was very public in my opposition to that. Uh, you know, again, I don't always agree with, those, with the legislators that they're attempting to recall, but I respect them. And actually, I resp I, um, they've supported a lot of my legislation, so there's a lot of mutual respect there. I hope these recalls fail. Um, I think that, um, that uh, those that are supporting them should have been a little bit more vocal and public about um, why they're doing that, because as I said, it, it is open this Pandora's box that um, won't get shut again. And you know, I guess it's always fine when it's not happening to you. <laughs> And when the shoe's put on the other foot, I think some people are going to be sorry that they, they open that door. Mm. Yeah, I should applaud for that. Have you called any of the Republican senators and said, what the heck are you doing? No. Um, you know, I, I, have, I think it's pretty clear uh, <laughs> where, what my position has been on that, so I don't think they, I need to call them. I mean, that, that's the thing, is the you know, horse out of barn. And... Uh, as I said, I, I know that it's in the Secretary of State's office with regard to the signature counting and, and, 
and what have you. But um, it's just a distraction that we don't need. Um, on another political issue that's come up even before the governor's race started, and we'll get to that in a second, you've used pretty apocalyptic language describing what you think would happen if the commerce tax, which was very hard fought for you to get passed, uh, is repealed. Now, the criticism is, oh, it's not a huge amount of money. Why are you getting uh, so upset about it in the scheme uh, of, of the budget? Why is it that it worries you so much? Well, I, I'll say this. Um, yeah, we, I expended a lot of political capital. Uh, to get that done. Uh, there were some legislators who frankly, you know, their vote cost them their, their political careers to get that done and I will respect them and thank them uh, forever. But anybody who proposes to eliminate the commerce tax, there's another side of the ledger. <laughs> and if you're gonna eliminate $400 million in, in commerce tax money, you gotta cut somewhere. And there are only a couple places that you can cut in the state budget, and that is in education or health and human services. Um, you know, there's the prison system, or the corrections is the rest of that, but you're not gonna be able to, to cut there. So if you're gonna eliminate that commerce tax, you better be able to look people in the eye and tell them what piece of the K through 12 that you're going to cut when you do that. And frankly, if anybody's proposing to do that, that should be the first question that, um, that you ask them, and in that, you know, that's that piece of it, but it also has stabilized our state budget and uh, has, has um, really not put it in a, or I guess, created a tax for those to pay that I think, frankly, were getting a free ride before. So, um, you, know, you know, they need to contribute to the state as well. And uh, I mean, we built in some things into it with regard to the credits for the modified business tax. To, to create the fairness for the people who employ more people, but I think that it's an important piece, an important component moving forward to make sure that we have stable tax policy as we move on. Will you be vocal about this during the campaign? Depends what the candidates say. Which brings me uh, to a few concluding questions for you, Governor. Um, you, t you mentioned your last year and you're not gonna take your, pedal, um, your foot off the gas. Uh, you're not going to just travel around collecting historical memorabilia or whatever else. You go to ribbon cuttings. Um, they're probably ribbon cuttings are good, by the yeah, way. Okay, yeah, okay, they're all right. Um, and then hopefully the legislature won't be back if you don't have to call a special session or they call themselves in. What a law that is, huh? Uh, Two thirds, though. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what are, what, are you go what are your goals in the last year? What, 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 is, what does Brian Sandoval want to get done before his final year is out? I think the most important thing for me, and we've talked about this as a staff, is we, um, we passed some very important pieces of legislation with regard to opioids, with regard to juvenile justice, um, with regard to workforce development, and there's a lot that goes into those bills. And I want to ensure that all the departments that are responsible for implementing that legislation are, are getting that done. Um, frankly, you know, and I'm not gonna be specific, but we've discovered in a few places where People are dragging their feet on some things, and so I have to write. On some legislation that was passed, you mean? Yes. Okay. And so, you know, I have to write herd on that to make sure it gets done. And selfishly, I don't want anyone in 2019 to say, you know, the governor kind of took a flyer and just kind of rode off into the sunset and didn't really, wasn't paying attention. I'm not going to let that happen. I want to make sure that everything gets done. And uh, frankly, 
to get those things done is going to be to the, the benefit of the state to make sure that, that particularly in workforce development, that uh, people are getting quality jobs, that, that pay well, that have good benefits in industries that we didn't have before. That's how we're able to attract these businesses because we can sell that we have a very sophisticated uh, workforce development system. Uh, you are chairman of the, uh, of the National Governor Association. I don't know if many people know that. Can, can you do anything at the NGA that can help the state? Absolutely. Like what? Yeah. So my, um, my initiative as chairman of the National Governors Association is called um, Ahead of the Curve. And essentially it is about um, how technology can affect state policy, particularly in transportation. And so at CES, there is going to be a meeting of the National Governors, one of the, the working groups on transportation. And it is a great way to, to feature the state. And people are discovering that, that Nevada is indeed a, a capital for unmanned aerial vehicles. And in, we're in the process of bidding on being one of the states for some specific testing that would really be a strong feather in our cap. We're in the process of attracting companies that um, are going, are cutting edge with regard to autonomous vehicles. So this really put, gives me the ability to put Nevada and feature Nevada and put us on a platform. And I think that is, it is opening people's eyes that, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking to start a business or one of the or move a business, Nevada's always now in the final four, where we weren't we weren't in that conversation before, and so um, yeah, selfishly as as the chairman, I'm going to do everything I can to to feature our state. I know the kind of guy you are. You may not even want to answer this question, but I hope you'll give it a shot. And a lot, a lot of people, as they come towards the end of a, a, a long tenure in, in a position, they think back. And do you have any regrets? Regrets, yes. Um, I think, and I, I knew you'd ask, ask this question. Um, you know, one of the hardest things for me, if, if I had a do-over, I guess, is, is um, what you're asking me is... Um, what happened with regard to mental health in the state and what happened at, at Ross and Neal. I think that that story, um, I didn't get on it soon enough. Um, I will say this, is that never, never was there a person who was sent somewhere you know, without, um, without a plan for them. There were mistakes made internally that um, resulted in, in what happened with that gentleman who was sent to Sacramento. They didn't have what was called the catcher's mitt, waiting for them, um, waiting for him when he arrived. But never, you know, there was an impression that we had a map of the United States and that we would have a patient and we would throw a dartboard and we would send this, put this person on a bus and send them there without any resources or would have that. That never happened. And I didn't take seriously enough the way that story went and how it got exaggerated, and if I had jumped on that earlier. But I will tell you, the lesson learned in that, for me, and that was a big catalyst in my decision to opt in on the Affordable Care Act, because by... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, by opt... It caused me to become very familiar with the way that we treat the mentally ill in, in the state of Nevada, and how we weren't doing what we should be doing. And it brought tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and it enabled single childless adults to get 
mental health care that they didn't have before. And then I met with Sylvia Burwell, who was the former um, head of the Health and Human Services, the cabinet secretary of Health and Human Services, and convinced her to increase the daily reimbursement rate from $300 a day to $800 a day, which opened up hundreds of beds, particularly here in Las Vegas. In fact, it was so successful, so successful that we weren't even able to fill the beds in the state system. And then I'm leading you now. Um, but in any event, it reduced our expenses at the state level so much that we reduced expense or portions of the budget for that, and that was called a cut. And it wasn't a cut because we were able to get so many um, individuals treated in the, in the private system. But in any event, your question was, do I have any regrets? Well, that was one of my regrets, that, um, that I didn't get on that soon enough. But like anything else, if you make a mistake, you learn from it, and you work on that and make it better. And I feel like now um, our system is much better, and people are getting mental health care that weren't getting it before. A couple of final questions before Elizabeth kills me. Um, you can endorse Adam Laxalt to succeed you. I haven't endorsed anybody. Um, and as I said, I'm going to wait to see um, what the candidates have to say. But I'm not going to support a candidate that's going to seek to undo what we've done in the past seven years. I'm not going to do it. Do you consider repealing the commerce tax, undoing what you've done? Yes. So that then you won't endorse him because that's what he's proposed. Well, you know, I will have a I'll have a conversation with him about that. I don't think I've made, this isn't the first time I've said that, uh, but um, I think, and it, you've heard me say it, I, I think it would be devastating to our you state. You can't budget. endorse somebody who's going to devastate the state, could you, Governor? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> you are, you are going to... I let him lead me for the yeah. first time. <laughs> I, waited, I waited until he was exhausted. Yeah. Uh, you are going to endorse Dean Heller, though? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, finally, let the, a lot of a lot of people and a lot of people go ahead and want to clap for Heller. It's fine with me. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people in this room are wondering about you, Governor. What you're going to do next? Mm -hmm. um, be be as candid as, as 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 you can about. Well, I mean, do you not know? I mean, do you want to run for something else? Whether no. it's you don't want to run for anything. Else. <laughs> I mean, there, there, you, know, you know there's some cockamamie theories out there that maybe Senator Heller won't run and that you'll decide to run mm -hmm. for the Senate. I've never gotten the sense that you're interested in going to Washington. I will not be on the ballot in 2018. That's just the way it is. So um, I won't be on the ballot next year. Um, you know, and I know those are theories. I've never, you know, I, my understanding is that Senator Heller is going to be filing and will be running aggressively for, for re-election and I will give him my full-throated support. Um, what do you want to do? You know what I'd like to do um, next? I'd like to teach. Um, I've, that's one of the, the things that um, I've always wanted to do. If I wasn't in politics or public service or I wasn't a lawyer, I'd be a teacher and a coach. Um, that, and this may be an opportunity for me, um, you know, after I'm finished here to hopefully share some of the experiences. I've had the opportunity to serve in all three branches of government. I've served in the legislature. I've served as a judge. And, and I've served in the executive branch, and I've been a regulator, um, both on the TRPA and uh, as a member of the Nevada Gaming 
commission. So I've, I've already had uh, conversations with the Ohio State uh, University <laughs> College. <laughs> Thanks for waiting all night to bring that up. Well, I got to ask him a question, uh, and yeah. I was going to ask, when is Michigan going to beat Ohio State? Oh, I just, oh but any event, yeah. um, I'd like to teach. And um, in fact, um, I'm going to have a conversation with the, the dean of the UNLV Law School, Rebels. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I'd like to do that. Um, I don't know if that's a, a full-time or a part-time basis, but um, that's one of the things I'm looking at. But frankly, I haven't had any conversations otherwise. I, I just didn't think it would be appropriate for me, particularly in a legislative year, to start having those types of conversations with, that are, um, as to what's next. I know I want to stay in Nevada. I love this place. I love this state. And uh, <laughs> What about, I, I know, I mean, there are some people who talk, and I don't think this is cockamamie or some others think, you know, Brian Sandoval is the kind of guy that we really need on a presidential ticket maybe, maybe going forward. I mean, and uh, believe me, you, 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 know, you know I'm not one to shamelessly flatter, but I mean, you have served in all three branches of government. You're as qualified as maybe some people uh, who, who have held the office. Um, is, is this something, seriously? I'm have, not answering that has, one. Has, has, has it gone through your mind? It has not. It no. has not. Um, you know, I, we had that debate here in Las Vegas, and, and I was there and had the, the privilege of um, watching that and meeting with most of um, the candidates at the time. And, you know, frankly, I, is, I guess we'll end where we started. You know, I have made some pretty unconventional decisions as, as the governor, and I would get sliced like mincemeat in one of those mm -hmm. uh, primary debates. But um, I tell you what, I'd be loud and proud and stand behind my record, regardless of what the outcome would be. Governor, mm -hmm. thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. thank Thanks to everybody thank for you. coming, too. Appreciate it. back on Indie Matters, and as every week from now on, Elizabeth Thompson, uh, my number two and the managing editor of the Nevada Independent, joins me to talk about the events of the week, and we're going to do a special version this week, and we usually will talk about a bunch of topics, but there were a bunch of topics that came up during Brian Sandoval's conversation with me at the Smith Center in the first of our series called Indie Talks. Elizabeth, that was something else, wasn't it? It sure was. Uh, Governor Sandoval came ready for you, I think, um, and was probably the most candid and relaxed and comfortable that I've perhaps ever seen him uh, in an interview. It was really something to be uh, in person in that room uh, with the two of you for more than an hour uh, hearing his thoughts on everything under the sun. And I, I actually got the sense that he would have gone on longer. He really enjoyed it. He, he, I mean, there were some tense moments. I pushed him on a few things. But the governor clearly, I, I thought at least, and you talked to him beforehand too, he seems liberated now that he only has a year left, probably doesn't have to deal with the legislature again if there's not a special session. He seemed really liberated to be, as, and, and I think you used the right word, more candid than almost any elected official, especially uh, such a high-level elected official you would usually be in public. Yeah, the governor, unfiltered and unplugged, I would say, um, yeah. was really 
an experience. There, there's a confidence and a boldness and, and a freeness uh, in him since the legislature, uh, I think, that is notable and rare uh, in, in any politician who still holds public office. You know, we live in a world where, you know, in the age of the soundbite and 24-7 headlines, a lot of politicians are just accustomed to giving sort of their canned uh, messaging. But it was a real conversation that took place, a real back-and-forth exchange that, that uh, just dripped with authenticity. It, it really was pretty outstanding. So tell me, uh, as you were listening, um, uh, were there times that your jaw dropped or you said, or you said to yourself, wow, I can't believe he said that? Were there many of those times? And do, do you remember any of them? I don't know about jaw dropping. I, I think the one portion that sort of surprised uh, me, in part because it was obvious that he had already given it some thought. So the, even though your question may have been a surprise to, to him, the topic was not. And that's when you asked him if he had any regrets. Uh, you know, most uh, politicians, most chief executives, they they may be willing to say they have some regrets, but they're usually not willing to specifically name them. Um, and Sandoval just came right out and said, look, I, I regret the, the way uh, that I handled the mental health issue when the news broke, that there were, was trouble at Ross and Neal, one of the big mental health facilities, uh, and that we were busing, you know, mental health patients out of state basically just to get them off our, our books. He, he candidly acknowledged that it took him too long to respond uh, and to react and to address it, and that if he had a do-over, um, he, he would have gotten on that much more quickly, would have looked into the details much more quickly than, than he did. Uh, I thought that that moment was really astonishing, and there's even more to it uh, than that. And it was astonishing, and it's tough to tell even uh, for you, because you were out, out in the audience as well, but sitting there, he, he, you were, you're right, he had thought about the, the answer to this, not necessarily because I was going to ask him about it, maybe, but maybe he thought about it because of that reason, but he clearly had been thinking, you know, as someone gets down to the end of their career in public office, they're thinking about their legacy and regrets, uh, et cetera, but you could tell, I mean, he was emotional. There was, a, I mean, I was, that, I was pretty close to him on that stage. He was emotional about this, and then, as if he was, I don't think he was doing it for a dramatic effect, Elizabeth, but at the end, when he said, and you know, John, some of the words to this effect, I'm paraphrasing, it was my experience in the, with, with this whole mental health problem that actually was the catalyst for me deciding to opt into the Affordable Care Act. And I don't remember, maybe you remember, there was almost an audible gasp in, in, the, in, in the audience and then, then applause for that. Yeah, that's right. I, thank you for bringing that up because that was the second piece of what he said, and that's the first time I've heard him give uh, a, a, ra- a single rationale, right, um, for opting into ACA. He, he's always uh, stated that he felt it was for the best for the social fabric for the state, that too many uh, indigent people in Nevada are un- uninsured, and that he, he thought that that Medicaid expansion was, was really the best thing for Nevada. But yes, for him to list that specific reason as part of the impetus for um, for that remarkable move that he made. Remember, he was the first Republican governor in the country to embrace that portion right. of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, exactly. And there was one other, uh, and, and, and you can't exactly tell from the audio, uh, uh, the video, we should say, uh, uh, will be on, on the website, uh, the Nevada Independence website of, of the Indy Talks. It may actually be up by the time this podcast is, is, is online. It may show more of this, but one other time, and I didn't bring this subject up, uh, 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 but he decided to bring it up, was when he started talking about the events of October 1st, the horrific shooting 
uh, in Las Vegas, and then he was even more emotional. I don't know how much the audience could really tell, but he was talking about what he saw when he got to the site and dealing with and talking to the first responders, and he made even a point, I believe, about talking about the coroners and, 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 and having to accept those bodies and that we should think of them as first responders too because it must have been a harrowing night uh, for them. I, obviously, it's going to be an indelible memory for all of us, but for the governor who was right there on the front lines of that and visiting uh, with these people, you can tell it was just a, a searing, searing memory for him. Absolutely. and I remember when we uh, wrote one of our many stories on on that subject in the days after October 1, and one of the most poignant to me, and, and our freelance photographer David Culver captured it on camera, was the governor's face, and he just saying he was heartbroken. It was evident that he was truly heartbroken, and it was evident again uh, how much that the memories of that night have stayed with him uh, emotionally, because it, that was uh, palpable from, from the room, and I remember glancing around at the room, and you know, there were uh, there were a number of members of the audience who were getting choked up uh, themselves as the governor w- was was speaking. So again, um, you know, just the warmth and the openness with which he spoke on that and and so many topics was remarkable. It was interesting too, and there was some real news broken. I know you were as surprised, even more surprised than I was, because I because I, I he brought this up, I believe, in the context uh, of my question about whether he had rethought his opposition to to the background checks. Uh, initiative, and it's clear that he has been thinking about gun rights in, in, in the way that a lot of, I think, very thoughtful people have been, uh, no matter what side of the issue you're on, since all of these mass shootings in the last uh, few years. And then he brought up uh, some news, Elizabeth, and uh, I think you were as surprised as uh, anybody in the room by it, right? Yeah, I really, I was surprised uh, and made myself a note that we should write a story on this in the near future, but apparently while this uh, very public debate has been going on about uh, the background checks for private gun sales and uh, whether question one is enforceable and uh, whether we should be running a, a state-based background check or a federal background check and whether the twain shall ever meet, uh, the governor behind the scenes has apparently made sure um, that any private party who wants to uh, run another party through a background check before a private gun sale takes place can do so for free using the state system. And that is the first I had heard of that. And not only that, and I, th- I, I was shocked to hear it, um, but it was almost as if the governor was encouraging people to do this. I, I got the sense because he thinks it's a good thing and that his thinking has been affected uh, by, by this. Did you get that sense that he was actually encouraging people to do it? That's how I understood it. Sure. Well, it. he, yes, absolutely. I think I, I heard uh, it seemed to me, although he acknowledges that he isn't personally a gun owner, he does care about gun rights. And I, I believe he did say either directly or, or indirectly that in general he supports the idea of a background check. Certainly for those of us who are gun owners and agree with that, uh, we're happy to hear that we can go get that done. For uh, the fees involved in getting it done or is one of the objections to the policy. You know, I actually was surprised because I, I actually almost mentioned that as a parenthetical as I was asking the question when I asked him if he was a gun owner. I was surprised that that uh, he said no. I thought anybody who had been in Nevada after you know forty or so years had to have a gun or so, or, or something like that. I was really, especially a Republican. I was surprised he's not a gun owner. Yeah, I was a little. I was surprised too. It's interesting what you can find out right in these interviews that when you start asking uh, follow up questions. So. 
Um, but uh, again, interesting that he was just very candid about that and then moved right into his uh, opinion on the on the policy. All right, I don't I don't want to spend too much more time talking about this, but was there anything else uh, that jumped out at you? His comments about Donald Trump I thought were interesting. His uh, the, the the clarity with which he he said that he was not going to endorse Adam Laxalt I thought was interesting. Maybe not that surprising. Anything else jump out at you? You know, it just kind of made me smile that there's no love lost between Sandoval and uh, and a man like Donald um, Trump because Sandoval is a completely different type of chief executive and a different type of politician. Um, I found it notable that he invoked the memory of Paul Laxalt, who was a mentor to him, uh, as well as Joe Dini and Kenny Gwynn, all of them known uh, as moderate elected officials, and that Sandoval has been very thoughtful, I think, in painting himself uh, in the same light uh, as these uh, gentlemen were. And and he talked about um, his moderate approach to governing and about the difference between governing and campaigning um, and how he stands uh, behind his record. In fact, when you asked him about presidential aspirations, he didn't really answer one way or another. You know, what he did was say that, you know, he'd never survive a Republican primary, um, but that he would stand proudly uh, on his record, be loud and proud, I think is what he said on uh, on that stage. And so uh, as we talked about at the outset here of this conversation, um, he really does seem to feel good about the way he's governed, the type of governor uh, he's been. And the only other thing I found notable, because I've never heard him say it before, when you asked him what might be next for him, he said that he wants to teach. Uh, and indeed had, uh, has already had some early conversations about the possibility that he might uh, t- teach at uh, the law school at one of our universities, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd always thought that he would be the kind of person who would want to teach, but the, the fact that, that he led with that uh, I thought was really interesting. I also thought you mentioned this. Uh, I thought it was quite resonant that, it, that he made a point of, and he's mentioned him before, but considering his a uh, very frosty relationship with Adam Laxalt that he would invoke Adam Laxalt's grandfather Paul Laxalt as one of his role models. Uh, you know, I don't want to read too much in between the lines, but it was just like, you know, Adam, you could be more <laughs> like Paul. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's exactly. You know, but what? But what? Uh, Paul Laxalt was known for uh, was reaching across the aisle. He worked with Democrats. Uh, in, in in the Senate. Finally, I do want to talk about one other part of the interview that I, that I found to be interesting, and something you usually don't talk to politicians about, especially Sandoval, and I brought up a couple of social issues with, with the governor, uh, both of which I thought he gave interesting answers to, considering he was raised Catholic, is a, is a Catholic, uh, and that he said he's always been pro-choice, that he had never gone, he hadn't gone through any kind of evolutionary thought process. I thought that was interesting, and I also thought, when I asked him about gay marriage, he talked about uh, uh, evolving on gay marriage and talk about his friends being gay and why don't they have a right to be happy as, uh, as, as well. I thought both of those, in- those uh, answers were very personal and very revealing. They, yeah, they were, and I was surprised. I don't think I realized that he has always been pro-choice. I, I made an assumption myself that because he is Catholic that he probably at least started out not being uh, pro-choice and that that is something that, that changed over the years. So that was really fascinating. You don't hear too many uh, Republicans, never mind Catholic Republicans, um, say that they've always been pro-choice and and never wavered on that issue. So that's notable uh, as well. And just one more reason why 
I think in a state where we have a lot of fiscal conservatives who are a little more liberally liberal socially, um, that Governor that Sandoval has the approval ratings um, that he does. I, I think he actually, um, in some ways, mirrors uh, what many voters uh, in, in this state uh, already are in terms of their policy beliefs. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, re- I really just want to say that I do think that this uh, uh, um, uh, setup that, w- that we have for these indie talks where uh, it's very conversational, very, very intimate, where, where, where we have the, uh, uh, myself and, and the interviewee just sitting up there on a stage uh, it, it, and, and, the, and in that beautiful room at the Smith Center. I just think this is the beginning of something really special and that, that uh, is going to uh, help change dialogue on issues. Uh, we should tell people, Elizabeth, that we already got the second one scheduled at the Smith Center with the National Pollster, Mark Melman, on April 24th, and, and he's going to release uh, the results of a, of, of, of a statewide poll that he's going to conduct for us right after filing closes. So we'll have a lot of really important results in that poll. And for our podcast listeners uh, up north, we are hoping to announce an Indie Talks uh, up in Reno I'm hoping um, uh, for February, and I'm hoping we can do these uh, regularly. I think it's going to be a great part of, our, of what we do, don't you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I do. These these Indie Talks events, I hope, will become more frequent. We're going to try to do them quarterly for starters. But the idea for the listeners to understand is that we really want to have elevated conversations, real conversations with real people about policy, about culture, about government, about Nevada, Um, not the same canned and stilted types of uh, interviews that you sometimes get uh, in a TV interview or a radio interview or, or even that comes across in, in print sometimes. We, we, we're going to try um, through panels and town halls as well, but um, through these one-on-one conversations to, uh, to offer something a little uh, different. And I, I think our first event went well. I was pleased. If you weren't able to make it, uh, listeners, please make an effort next time because that room at the Smith Center sure is beautiful. Uh, we really had a wonderful uh, evening uh, and we look forward to meeting uh, many of our listeners who we have not yet met at these events. Absolutely. And uh, I want to just publicly thank you, Elizabeth, for all the work you put in that event. would not have happened uh, without uh, all of your hard work. So thank you for that. And thanks for uh, the conversation today uh, on Indy Talks. Elizabeth, I'll see you soon as uh, uh, you boss me around uh, online. <laughs> so yeah, see you online. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters Podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at, at ideas at the NVindy. That's T-H-E-N-V-I-N-D-Y dot com. Check out the site if you haven't already, NevadaIndependent.com. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe. We're also on Google Play. Uh, I also want to thank our wonderful hosts, as I always do, uh, at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always... Many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer up north, who makes us all sound what, Elizabeth? Podcast smooth. Oh, does she sound podcast smooth? I never do. Someday, perhaps. I am John Rawls, I'm the editor of Nevada Independent. Thanks for listening to Indy Matters. We'll talk to you next week.